0: Daddy's a little bit stuffed up right now. Just getting uh, getting over a cold, not COVID, already had COVID. Doing much better, feeling much better. Thank you for asking. Got a couple of new episodes of Man of Science, Man of Faith out. The first one is With Teeth by Nine Inch Nails. We do track-by-track review of the album, talk about what it means to us. And also, Millhouse Chronicles Volume 1 on Man of Science, Man of Faith. We were way too nice to him on that episode. Actually, let the record show that I wasn't on that episode at all. I was drunk and passed out and on a blow-up mattress while Milhouse and Zach recorded that, which we actually recorded that night. We recorded a whiplash that ended up never coming out because the episode was so horrible. Me and Zach talked about it. We're like, this is not good. We can't do it. But go check out House Chronicles. That's the only podcast that was released from that night. Check out Wit Teeth. Uh, like, subscribe, and rate all of this stuff. Share it. Tell a friend. We hope you enjoy the show. For The Poptimist, of course, the show you're listening to right now, you can find me on Facebook as Taylor Berryman or The Poptimist Podcast, as well as Instagram, The Underscore Poptimist, and then Twitter, DUB the Poptimist. Today's episode is with Brandon Steiner, sports memorabilia mogul, founder of Steiner Sports, owner of Collectibles Exchange. Check that out. They got a lot of Black Friday specials that are going on as of right now. Brandon Steiner, super interesting guy, creator of the Everything Bagel, little known fact about him. He talks about it in his book, You Gotta Have Balls, which we talk about in detail today. Also, just talk about business, entrepreneurship, leadership, all that good stuff. I really enjoyed it. Here it is. Okay, and we're rolling. Today we have Brandon Steiner, founder of Steiner Sports, also the author of You Gotta Have Balls. I have to say, I absolutely love this book because you talk a little bit about the human element of entrepreneurship. What are some of the human elements of entrepreneurship?
1: Well, the human elements, well, first, it's nice to see you and nice to be on, on 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 the conversation with you. I don't know, you know, the human elements, a lot of people argue about whether you're born with this, whether you can develop this. But, you know, to me, entrepreneurism is simple. It's a mindset. So your ability to understand uh, the circumstances and in the industry and the market that you're wanting to get involved in, try to see where the white space is, try to see really where the, the problems are. You know, there's only one reason to be into entrepreneurism is to be a problem solver. And that's when people get confused, like, you're a your problem solver, so it's very difficult because you're not jumping on a bandwagon where there's this glorious industry, and you're jumping into it. And I'm not saying it's always glorious, but entrepreneurism is it's trying to find a, you know, a problem and trying to come up with a really brilliant solution that no one else has thought of. And then there's the uh, risk part of it, because you could be wrong, or maybe people just don't believe you, which is very common. Or maybe the risk part of it is, you know, big financial uh, undertaking to kind of get your idea to go through. But it's difficult when you come up with an idea and everyone's going one way, you want to go another way. And I think the leadership skills like, you know, again, these could be taught, but, you know, you have to be able to talk and be able to sell people into your idea when they believe in something else. And, you know, faith is such an important part of entrepreneurship because, you know, faith is something that you have to believe in that you can't see. So faith is a very important part of entrepreneurism. It's something that really brings all those three things together because you're believing in something that people can't see. You're trying to solve a problem that you know is for the betterment of that business, that industry, or for those people that you're dealing with. And and you got to lead. And a lot of the leadership comes with your ability to have a strong faith and be able to sell in a strong faith.
0: What does strong leadership mean to you? Um, I mean, you know, caring about people more than you
1: care about yourself. You know, wanting to do what you do more than, you know, you gotta to want to teach more than being a teacher. You gotta to want to help people get better more than want to be a doctor. You know, you you gotta to want to play baseball more than being a baseball player. I think you know you've got to be able to lead with a sincere, authentic passion for what you're doing. I think that's number one. Number two, you know, you gotta care about other people and 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 really. To make other people believe that you got to help them grow, uh, people that you are leading, you know, they care about probably two things. Uh, you know, they talk a lot about you know your employees being happy, but your employees want to be challenged, and they want to grow. You know, show me a company that's got growth and challenge, uh, and ability for people to see the future, or the ability to see that they can accomplish something right now, and I'll show you a group that's being led.
0: Interesting. Okay, so when it comes to an individual basis, though, everybody is kind of different, but we're all similar at the same time. So, when trying to make an assessment as a leader, what do you? How do you really decide where to put someone or what role to put them in?
1: Well, I mean, it's complicated these days because um, you know it's so easy for people to think that they can do certain things <laughs> when they when they can't. Uh, and then there's difficult sometimes getting people to see that they can do things uh, even when they can. So, you know, that's a big part of the leadership and managing people is getting them to really see past themselves. Uh, and I think a good leader is able to step outside themselves and really see themselves in the situation that they're in, which is critical. I mean, it's really hard. I always talk about parenting and leadership and parenting is being able to step outside your family and see your family for what they really are. See your children for who they really are. You know, yes, you're going to love them. Yes, you're going to look out for them and care for them, but also see them. See their points of difference. See their, their, their uniqueness. See their struggles for what they are. And then you can really parent a lot better. It's really the same thing with, with managing. Like you get so close with your employees and they get kind of caught up in, a, in a, an opportunity or a job that you've given them. But you got to step outside of that and really see them for what they really are. And that's difficult, you know, because it takes a lot of energy and time about, you know, and caring about somebody else and thinking about someone else, which is what most people don't do. They think about themselves and their situation, and most people are compulsively just completely, you know, just some just some submerged into their own stuff, you know. But to be a good leader and a manager, you've got to be able to break outside yourself and really get submerged into other people's stuff. And, and, and there's a whole bunch of ways you could do that, but. I think one of the most simple ways is one-on-one, you know, just the more you can sit with, you know, important people that you're managing one-on-one and and not a confrontational and not a pressure situation always, because sometimes you can learn from that, but then sometimes just sitting and talking to somebody and finding out where they're coming from uh, is, is huge. I always used to throw a bowling party for my companies early on because they would bring their spouses and I'd get an idea to see their competitiveness, you know, what they were like, what their excitement level was like when they won and got a strike, What they're, the, you know, what how upset they would get when they didn't get a, a, a pivotal, you know, a couple pins down. You get to really, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a shot out of the one-minute manager, but, you know, you got to be able to learn a lot about people by observing them. And sometimes I would just go into the office and, and i try to just pick one or two people out and observe them for almost an entire day and just kind of watch. Just trying to get a feel. It's amazing when managers don't really have any idea. And these times, it's even more difficult because everybody's so remote. But you know, you're in an office. It's amazing when you can observe an employee or two for five, six hours and really see their focus and what they're what they're doing. It's amazing what you'll see, good and bad.
0: That kind of makes me think a little bit. We are so isolated right now. Um, in this world that we're living in with coronavirus uh the, even just the internet itself has really led to a lot of opportunities but it has also led to in some ways like the death of civility and empathy we're we're not able to relate on kind of like a human level anymore when we're behind these screens so how 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 do you still find the empathy empathy through working through technology
1: I think you know I think Probably we got to bring back the one-on-one conversation. I think now what's happening is, you know, you got management and, and coaches, you know, doing a lot of group conversations. So it's really no better, no worse than when they were before. So, you know, the question is, is the manager going to take the time to do the one-on-one stuff? I mean, you really stop and think about how many times does your manager and coach talk to you one-on-one? I was talking to a Division One basketball player about a year and a half ago, and I he was a senior. And I asked him, since he got recruited and came onto the team, how many one-on-one conversations with a coach that's his boss, the guy who dictates his time, who's going to probably dictate his future, how many one-on-one conversations have you had with your head coach? And he said zero. And, you know, that's just shocking to me. Like, And I'm not saying that every head coach, that's the case. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of head coaches, they're busy and they're So I just think, you know, to me, I think the one-on-one conversation, and I'm not talking about these, you know, these reviews that companies make managers do, which are bullshit. Um, You know, there's only one thing you want to do in a review is tell an employee what you want them to do more of and what you want them to do less of. And same thing I would tell any player and if I was coaching them in, in, in any kind of sport. Do more of this. You're really good at this. I like your growth. Do a lot more. And by the way, this other thing you're trying to do do it little less of it, because you're not that good at it. But I think these reviews are, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if managers and coaches really know how to con- conduct a review and it puts a lot of pressure on a uh, employer and, and an employee to have this one conversation that capturizes six months, sometimes a year. I think you, if you're not sitting down talking to your uh, the person you're coaching or managing, you know, once a month or every other month, you're probably... You're probably on, you know, you're probably on the outside looking in, not getting the most out of your person.
0: Is that something that is instinctual for you, or something you learned along the way?
1: No, I've learned it on the way. I mean, you know, listen, I've, I've watched my mother manage people as a young kid, and, and you know that approach. And it's complicated managing people. I mean, I always wanted to be a manager, so I studied management at Syracuse. I, I, I mean, it, you learn along the way, you know, and again. There's nothing against the group conversation and letting the group know kind of where we're going as an overall, I think those types of meetings and those kind of conversations are important too. But, you know, you got to think about what is it that's driving your people? What information is that's getting underneath your people to give them the lift? And I think that over time, what I've learned is that less bigger meetings and more smaller meetings and less meetings overall. Yeah um, you know, help. I mean, you know, having a lot of these, you know, these zoom meetings are driving people crazy. They're going way too long. Um, and then, you know, more one-on-one about, Hey, given the situation, please make sure you talk to do this, do that. Cause I don't know. I always thought if people work from home, they'd be very, uh, you know, they'd save some time, no commute, no distractions with other people in the office, but then it's incredible how much distracted they are. I mean, I, you know, I, I try to get people that are work from home and they're like, it's almost as bad as when they were in the office now with the level of distraction. And the difference is you just don't know what they're distracted with. It could be their kid not feeling well that day. could be a leak in the ceiling. So all of a sudden you're dealing with a whole bunch of other distraction and factors that you, as a boss, you have to have empathy for, but also there's only so much tolerance you can have. And, you know, some people don't manage the work-life balance well, so if your kid's in the other room crying or all of a sudden he's home from school, then what
0: are you going to do? Work-life balance. This is something that I've gotten more interested in as I've gotten older. Uh, just I know for myself, that was something that I really failed a lot at in my early 20s where I was just so laser focused on the bullseye, you know, and trying to succeed, trying to do that. Something you talk about. Is the work-life balance? Why is that important?
1: Well, I love that in my last book, Living on Purpose, which you know, I'm giving away free on my website, by the way, on Collectible Exchange. But you know, work-life balance is bullshit. Uh, you know, work expect, respect life balance is real. You know, at the end of the day, if you tell me anybody who's done anything extraordinary that was like, you know, getting in around nine, leaving around five, went to every little league game, I mean, please introduce me to that person. I don't know if they exist. I mean, you know, listen, I, I think that you have to draw the line sometimes. And I think that there are times we have to say, look, I'm not available. You know, my family needs me. I think you got to balance it out. I think when you're on a roll and it may be a couple of weeks, couple of days, couple of months, that's fine. And so when you get on that roll and it's five years, you know, it's we haven't been to your by. kids little league game in three years, you know, you haven't had a catch with your kid. He's already 15. Like that's problematic, I think. But it's difficult, like, uh, to balance it. I, you know, I talk a lot about this in living on purpose, but it is complicated. And I think, to me, there's never any compromise in your health and fitness. It's a big mistake that people make. I always say, like, you. most people think when they do well, then, well, after I do well, make a lot of money, get the promotion, get the corner office, then I'm going to do good. But it's the other way around. You, you always want to do as much good as you can. And doing good will lead you to doing well. And that co- covers yourself. Like, you want to do as much good for yourself. You want to eat well. Oh, I don't have time to eat well. I'm on the fly. Like, well, really? Like, you mean to tell me if you don't eat incredibly well every day that you'd be more productive and be able to get more stuff done? Of course you would. If you exercise multiple times a week, you don't think that would give you more energy enable you to even do more? People say, I don't have time to exercise. You don't think that if you took the time to spend a few hours with your spouse and made sure, maybe you left your cell phone home on date night, and you had a better relation with your wife, you'd do better at work because you know you're good with your wife. You're not good with your wife or husband. How many times you come into work and that's holding you down, holding you back, not motivating you? At least I know, like when I'm not good with my wife, I'm not doing my best work. So I think that you know it's important to do good and let do good, let all the do good lead you to doing well. So. Um, I, you know, the work life balance is, look, if you're going to be somebody who's trying to be extraordinary and great at what they do, then that's who you are and that's what you want to do. It's not for everybody, but also remember, there has to be a pause button, not a stop button and not a blow everything up button, but you got to use the pause button. It's the least button that's used on your remote control. It's so a pause button. Just slow down, take a pause, leave work a little early once in a while. Get to the lily game once in a while. You don't have to be the perfect parent because it doesn't exist. But if you're somebody who's just all work, no focus on anything else, you're probably heading into a, a bad place uh, somewhere
0: down the road. The pause button. I That's a great point. The pause button for me, I think another thing that I've kind of worked on for my, myself, when you hit that pause button, it's the ability to hit the play button again and get back to it. That's an art unto itself was that something again that you had to just learn through your own personal experience
1: yeah i mean it's hard because you get so consumed with what you're doing you're competing i mean listen once you get to a certain level you got people trying to pull you down you got people trying to get you um you know get you know trying to catch up you're competing um you're fighting and scrapping and it can be very consuming so it really does take a, a lot of self-discipline and some mental stamina. Sometimes, you know, you go to, to, to the gym to work out and you got know, to go to the mental gym. You know, sometimes you got to take that time, to really think about how your day and how things are laying out. And there's been a million people that have talked about, you know, how to get that right. Because it's so important. Your mental mindset will control so many things. But it was difficult for me, you know, because, you know, you wake up and you want to compete. You want to be great at what you do. You want to do well for yourself, your family. But sometimes you get a little carried away. So there was a breaking point for me when I realized that, you know, there's other things in life than just being great at what you do. You don't want to be great at what you do and then suck at life. So, you know, you want to make sure, you know, that you kind of, as much as you're measuring, how well you're doing in business, but usually how much money you make, your title, your promotions, and everything else. You should also measure what kind of friend or what kind of parent and what kind of spouse or, 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 or friend. Or, you know, you know those other things you are because you can measure those too. So if you asked your kids on a scale of one to 10, how good a dad am I? And your kids start telling you like a four or five, you know, you may just want to realize like that score counts too. Even though you're making $2 million a year, you know, your kid says you're a four.
0: Yeah, (laughs) maybe that's the most important as well. Like that measurement into itself, because when you look back towards the the end of your life, I feel like you can spend it all in an office and all working, but if you don't have those relationships and you missed out on the people that you do love, then what was the point of all the success if you don't have the love and the balance to go with it? That's a good
1: question and a lot of people, you know, can start thinking about now or they can wait till the end of their life and figure out. But, um, you know, listen, I I love my work and I'm going to spend a good amount of my time probably till I die working, but that's by choice. But, you know, I'm not going to let it get in the way of certain personal things that, you know, that maintain a good relationship at home and with certain friends and things like that. I think now with the virus going on, it's a good time to measure all that out because, for most of us, you know, we were definitely had some level of travel, commute to our game. And we've now picked up probably at least a day, a week, more of personal time. And now you can really see the score. You can see where you're at because you don't have the excuse. You know, you don't have, um, oh, well, I've got, got this. I got, it. you know, you really are much more in control of your time than ever. So I think this is a great time, even though, um, you know, listen, everybody's busy. I got to go. I got to run, which is why they call it the human race, by the way. But maybe it's not a race. Maybe, maybe it wasn't meant to be a, a, a human race. Maybe it was meant to be something else. And I think this is a good time to evaluate that, you know, to really evaluate your time on a day-to-day basis to see what, what's important. And not so much even that you should work less or do that, but you really see how it's your choice in many cases of you know non-work laziness to participate in a lot of things that you really have always had the chance to participate in, but you choose the easy street of just focusing on doing well.
0: Where does that self-awareness come from though? Is that something, again, going back to what you were kind of saying earlier, is that something that someone is born with or is it nurture? Is it brought out in someone?
1: I mean, a lot of it comes from, you know, when you grow up in in your house you see your parents and, and you can pick up a lot of it there, and sometimes that could be good. Sometimes it could be bad. But, you know, sometimes you see wealthy people, their kids are kind of screw ups and they, they don't understand why. How could this successful guy and they hear this kid's a screw up? And that's because he never sees what his dad does. His dad's always at work. He sees what his mother does. And his mother is a bright, intelligent, warm, loving person. But she doesn't have the same kind of purpose and, and spitfire as the husband, the goal is, is that for both parents infiltrate to that child's personality is how you create a winning environment for your, for your kids, I think. And they really see it all. You know, they see your parents working hard. They see your parents working in the community. They see your parents caring a lot about them. So I think, you know, all those things matter. And a lot of times in a lot of homes, the kids only see one thing. They see moms at home, Sorry about that. And they no, see, you. you know, mom's at home and then they see, you know, uh, they don't really know much about what the dad does. Like I grab my kids to go to work all the time to see the trials and tribulations of what I was fighting for. You know, I took one to meetings, let them work in the warehouse. And I, I, I They've seen it all. Now they choose, but they understand that, you know, that, that both being a good husband or being a good mom, being a good parent, being a good brother and sister, they see it by the, what they see you do as a parent. That's the biggest example. And most people think, I mean, it is important to make sure your kids don't kill themselves. But, you know, kids are watching how you deal with your spouses as a parent, you know, how I deal with my brothers and sisters, or how I deal with my wife. They're picking up all that. There's no question. So I think that, you know, you learn along the way. I think it's another thing is like, you know, if I said to you, you know, whatever business you're in, you know, you've gone to every conference, you've read every book. But if, if I asked you, how much have you learned about being a better friend? How many books have you read about being a better husband or wife? You know, those books are just as important. So this is what you know, and then there's what you don't know. And your interest in getting better has to be more than just getting better at your golf game or better at just, you know, making more money. You know, getting better as a person isn't necessarily just making more money. And I think that's the problem with society is that. Like, most people view you as successful as somebody that's made a lot of money. Even though the guy's been divorced twice, treats his kids like crap. I don't look at that as a successful person. I look at that as being a successful business person, but I don't get much. I mean, that's not somebody I really want to hang with. That's not somebody I really ultimately respect. Um, so, you know, my, my goal is, even this conversation, is, yeah, you could always build up all the categories There are people out there that can teach you more about having a better relationship with your spouse, how to be a better parent. It's amazing how little people want to talk about how to parent better. And Is there anything more important than parenting? And I'm not saying the parents out there aren't doing a good job. I think it's the hardest job on the planet is parenting. But what consulting and help are you getting to be a better parent, considering it's one of the most important things you're doing? That's what I talk a lot about living on purpose. It's like, man, it's hard to parent, especially these days, like, I think we all need all the help we can get in parenting. Yet, most people won't take advice. They won't get help. And they, you know, they, they get what they get, which is, you know. This, this.
0: Speaking of parenting, in what ways did your mother kind of shape your views on life, business, friendship, all that good stuff?
1: Well, you know, my mother's favorite line was, you got to have balls. And she was a fearless character. Probably could have used a little more discipline. You know, didn't have a lot of discipline. There's a lot of spontaneity, which doesn't always go over that well in my house, you know, because some, you know, my there was never any uh any boundaries to, to what we were able to do, when we were able to do it and how we did it. Um, but you know, she taught me the importance of being fearless and, and being resilient and and not taking no for an answer, you know, and not being afraid to go after all your wildest dreams. Um, I think. She also taught me one of the more valuable lessons, which is, you know, how important it is to help others. And that's why we're here. So in regards of what your status is, how much money you make, there's always room and should always be room in your day to help somebody. And uh, the more you can help somebody, uh, the better. And that's definitely got to be part of your diet is trying to help somebody. And that is always part of our, our business sense, too. Even when she was in business, it wasn't a focus on only making money. It was a focus on trying to help people serve. And I learned a lot about serving people from her, uh, about wanting to help people, uh, whether when she was a travel agent or she owned a hair salon, uh, making people feel better and look better, having, you know, honeymooners going at their best trip that they could afford. You know, she was extremely helpful in her approach. And I try to do the same thing when I'm in business is not so much worry about what I can get and how much I can make but how much I can really help. And then I let the money thing work its way out
0: that makes sense It makes a lot of sense and it goes again back to it's unfortunate
1: that most people don't do it but yeah
0: well why do you think that most people don't do it though
1: i think most people don't do it because they don't understand that that's playing the long game most people want immediate results they size up and and, and, and analyze the situation that's in front of them and don't see enough that's in it for them they don't think that developing a relationship with with any customer and every customer will eventually in the long run help you they don't believe they have no faith they don't believe in the, the long term process and in playing the long game and i think most people are playing the game for today and if they, there's a story that they believe today then they'll buy in if not but you know if you if you're playing anything but the long game you're headed towards mediocrity if you don't believe that you know doing your best and putting out more than what's even expected And helping people, even though there may not be any kind of come back or give back from what you're doing for someone, if you don't believe that putting out as much good in the world uh, for the sake of just putting out as much good will help you at some point and enable you to have good come back to you, then you're playing the short game. You're playing a game that's headed to mediocrity, but most people don't have the faith that it's going to work out for them. They think, oh, it's never going to work out. This person's never going to care. They're never going to give me any appreciation. There's never going to be anything coming back for me if I do all this other stuff. And uh, it's the complete opposite of my mindset. And that mindset, you know, I learned a lot of it from Harvey McKay and my mom. But that mindset came, you know, when I was like 20, which is a hard game to play, which means do as much as you can for as many people as you can as often as you can and expect nothing back. It's a very hard game to play, you know, to go out and do a lot of things for a lot of people because some are going to take advantage and expect nothing back. But, you know, putting out good and doing as much good is it's good for your soul. That's what feeds your soul. Maybe it doesn't feed your pocket at that moment, but having a strong soul along with strong character and a, good, and a mindset that wants to help others is, is powerful, man, as you go through this journey
0: and this war of life. It is a war and there's many battles to be fought. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. <clears throat>
1: What's funny is as I'm 16 and I've been doing this for 40 years it's amazing how I pick up the phone and call people and it's amazing how fast they want to help me. I try not to ask people for help I'd rather give help than get help but you know when I do call and I ask for help it's amazing how many people uh, are willing to do a little bit extra or do something for me without even thinking because they know that I'm a giver and they know that whenever they call me I'm not just a one-legged friend so you just got to decide if you want to play the long game. I, there are people that've taken advantage of me and probably asked me to do things that are you know, way above and beyond. And and, but you know something, that's okay. I'm ahead. I'm ahead out there. Is, hopefully, I've had a good, positive effect. I hope that if the day that when I die, there's a whole bunch of people say, you know, something I like that guy, man, he was he was good to me. You know, I had, he had a good effect on me. You know, he he helped me with something. You know, I, I'm okay with that. That's me. Will be a great feeling uh, as I lay there, you know, trying to size up what all happened over these years.
0: Patience is truly a virtue, um, and it, the, I think, I think giving—I giving is- think
1: giving without getting is a virtue. I think helping people and serving people is the underlying core of not only sales but life. Most people run into somebody that's successful and wealthy, and they're thinking, "What can I get?" Not what value can I give? And value is what I do for someone that they can't do for themselves. Nobody, we're not enough people are thinking about value, what their real value is. Not just showing up and they just because they showed up at work uh, for a whole bunch, uh, X amount of years. And and now they feel like they're valuable. Now, what was the value you have? Which meant what did you do for your company that that company couldn't do? for themselves, that you made that company better? What value did you give to your friendships and to your community? Why is the community better? Because you lived in it. Like, I still get a player for the Little League, even though my kid hasn't played in 15 years. You know, it's got to be some benefit of Steiner being in Scarsdale. So I get players for the Temple. I get players for the Little League. I try to do things for the community because there should be always an advantage and a value of you being involved in something. So think about what value you provide in the relationships you have, whether it be your job, your community, and even in your own house. Like what what's what's the most valuable thing you provide? And think about if you're pushing that issue, because that's the underlying tone. I always think about every relationship I have. Am I providing any value? Am I giving value in this in this situation? Because if I don't, it's going to be a short term, short lived, you know,
0: proposition. So changing topics. You bought old Yankee Stadium. How did that happen? I mean, it seems so fantastical that, that that could even happen. You could start this company. You could do all of this. How did you have that vision to be, like, how did that opportunity even arise?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, um, I don't know if it was fantastic, It was probably stupid. But, you know, listen, I love the Yankees, and they, they, we had a partnership at that time where, you know, we had a partnership to sell their game use and stadium use. So we had talked about if anything had ever happened, that we'd hopefully be able to partner up. What I love about the Yankees is that they're, they are a walk-to-walk and talk-to-talk company. So they, they understood the importance of taking that stadium down, what it meant to fans. And I had a very long-term, very wide approach that was not necessarily liked by many because it was going to be a four-year plan, and I really wanted to do something much different with it than what most other people view doing. Most people take a stadium down, sell the most important assets, and screw the rest. And then a lot of teams don't even give it that much love. They just want to move on to the new stadium, and they don't want to get caught up in the past. But I think the Yankees understood the legacy involved. What went down in that stadium is one of the most famous stadiums of all time, and they definitely trusted me and definitely supported and helped me and ultimately partnered with me to take this stadium down in a, in a respectful way. I know it sounds crazy, but there's a way to dismiss a building and, and there are ways not to like, and I've dealt with a whole bunch of buildings and stadium dismissals and most teams don't didn't do it the way the Yankees did. It. And I give them a lot of credit for, for that because they believe in their brand. They respect the fans and their connection to that building. And a lot of us put a lot of days and time into that building and a lot of great moments. So as much as they had this new building going up, which was amazing in itself, they had the respect to take the time and support me to let me take the old one down. Uh, it was very, uh, you know, it was, it was just a labor of love. I mean, again, not the smartest thing. There were ups and downs and it was not an easy process. Uh, not for me, not for the Yankees. You know, the city owned the actual stadium. So we obviously we had to work with the city. A lot of different union stuff and different complications with pulling that stadium apart, but we did it. And I'm happy we did it because hundreds of thousands of pieces are now floating around the universe with Yankee fans. There's nobody better than the Yankee fan as far as how they feel about their team, and now they've got that little piece of the stadium, whether it be a seat, a base, dirt, grass, a piece of the foul pole, a piece of the black, maybe one of the uh, lockers or the carpet, which we made into... uh, doormats we made it to, you know car mats we there's nothing we didn't think of so uh i'm very proud of that project uh if i had a chance to do it over again i do it i would do it uh but it, it was it was a lot of work it was a lot of work probably not the most effective productive work for three four years of my time and there's other things i probably could have done to make more money but sometimes you just have to do things because if you're really committed into to your industry, which I was and I am, then you, you do things because it's the right thing to do. And sometimes things are not big revenue boosts and they're not all kinds of, you know, scale X. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do and you do them because that's what the, the, the world calls for. And that's what the business calls for. And you do it.
0: A passion project. A purpose. Yeah,
1: a passion and a purpose. And you make a commitment because you know it's the right thing to do. And, you know, ultimately, people are going to appreciate it. And, you know, that that's what your brand is all about. You know, it's the people.
0: So let's talk a little bit about predictions for 2021. What do you think is going to happen in the offseason? Do you think the Yankees will be able to keep DJ LeMayhew?
1: I have no idea. Um, I hope so. I mean, obviously, you know, the Yankees have have a lot of different, you know, they're a big company and, and you have to respect the fact that there's always a priority for them to put the best team on the field. I'm very confident in the Yankee management and Cashman to doing that. But, you know, there's, they're a business and they're accountable and they can't just go off, especially in this environment where there could be another season where not full, you know, with all fans and everything. You know, they're accountable and they've got to balance it. And I think all the team is going to have that pressure. You know, you can't just go off on spending sprees. I think that's somebody that I would think – the Yankees want to sign, um, but you know I'm not sure all the different priorities that they have. Um, my guess is they sign them.
0: I hope so. I, I they have such a great team and the ability to be another dynasty again in the same way they were in like the the you know mid to late. Not here's what
1: I say to people. I know they haven't won the big you I've know, gotten to the dance here the last three years, but. What team right now, given their team right now? Let's say we signed DJ LeMay, But what team would you want to trade the Yankees out for in the major leagues? Who would you? What team would you rather have? If you could just do a, a trade, your entire team for another team. There's only three other teams that you can make the argument: the, the Dodgers, maybe Houston, maybe, maybe Tampa Bay. Maybe I wouldn't trade the Yankees for Tampa Bay. That's yeah, you know, I wouldn't but I I still like Tampa Bay, but I wouldn't trade our our team for that team. Maybe the Dodgers. You can maybe make an argument that Houston's got a formula all in all, maybe. I wouldn't trade the Yankees for Atlanta. So you're still in the top three best teams in the major leagues. And you've been there for a while. Like to me, I'm satisfied. Yeah, I want to win a championship, you know. And Derek Jeter always said, you know, if you don't win a championship, it's a failure. I don't agree. I think you want to be, in this day and age, With so many teams and so competitive, if you could be in the Final Four time and time again, which the Yankees have been in the Final Four more than any other team in the last 20 years, by far, I'm good. Now, do I want to win a championship? Yeah, of course I do, and I think everybody does, but to be in the top two or three teams in the league, even these last three years, is what you want as a fan. You want that emotional pull that you could win it all. You want to know your team, if everything does go right, can win it all. You have a chance. That's, I think, what management ownership should at least try to deliver to fans. They can't, you know, there's so many different factors with injuries and different things that happen that stop you maybe from winning that one game. I mean, the Yankees are one inning away from going to the ALCS. I mean, it was, I mean, What are you going to do? That's why they play the games. But I just want to know that come the end of the season, I don't want to be the Mets. You know, I don't want to be the Pittsburgh Pirates. That I'm not interested in. I'm not interested in sitting there and losing year after year after year at this point in competition. That's my take.
0: (laughs) Final question. Did you really invent the everything bagel?
1: Yes. I mean, the story is in the book. And, you know, living on purpose, it's there. And I know Gary Vee made a big thing of it. Love Gary V. I just actually did a whole thing on like Gary V. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a whole story that you know, I don't want to take too much time. But basically, when I baked bagels as a young kid, I was kind of bored. And I had this nighttime job, and I started messing around with all different seasonings. We came up with the Everything Bagel. But it did start with me delivering a lot of bagels when I had my paper route, which is how I got the, the making of the bagels job, which was what a blessing that was. Because you know, when I was like 12, 13 years old, you couldn't get a job. It was recession back there in the the 70s. It was tough. So for me to be able to work continuously through junior high school and high school was amazing. And bacon bagels was a big part of my childhood, uh, which is why I don't eat bagels anymore, because that is not recommended on a diet. It's the most difficult carb probably somebody could eat. And there are only a few places that make great bagels because I know better. And uh, the Everything Bagel was just something that came up out of boredom. And uh, I didn't monetize on it. So I always say your first idea is not your best idea. It's only an idea. And so you can execute it, which I did. And then you got to monetize on it, which I didn't. I was only 12, 13 years old though.
0: (laughs) Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a
1: great day. And uh, I hope if anybody's interested, you can catch up with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Look forward to
0: seeing you. Cool. Awesome.